Father, thank you. What a powerful move of God this morning. Thank you that we can come into your room, the Holy of Holies, and do business with God as he does business with us. I know you've spoken to hearts here today. Only eternity will reveal that. And we thank you for the opportunity that you give us to speak the word to your people. I pray for your anointing this morning. Perhaps something even beyond. So I can communicate to your children the word that you've given to me. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to speak to you for a few minutes. I'm taking care of unfinished business. We've been talking about giants. We've been studying in our Sunday school Bible class in early morning for weeks about the different giants that would love to overcome us. And this morning... I want to talk to you about some of those giants. I want to talk to you about Moses for a moment. Moses, 40 years, lived in splendor, Pharaoh's court. Killed an Egyptian. Went on the run for 40 years. 80 years old, God spoke to him from the burning bush and sent him back to the place where he failed. History will repeat itself if you don't take care of unfinished business. If we're not careful, we'll make the same mistake the second time that we did the first time. Peter denied Christ three times. Stood by a fire, warming his hands. Denied that he even knew Jesus. And when Jesus rose again from the dead, he was making breakfast on the seashore for the disciples. As Peter was in the boat with other disciples. See how we influence each other negatively? Peter took them back to the fishing nets. Come on. (laughs) but Jesus was on the seashore making breakfast he said do you have any meat children (laughs) and Peter recognized it was him and they pushed ashore and they ate and Jesus looked at Peter and three times he brought him back to where he failed. Coals of fire. Jesus set it up historically. For Peter to say three times, Lord, I love you. What about those folks that never hear the voice of God or do hear 
and choose to disobey because of their own lust, their own will, and their own pride. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 40, the Bible said, And he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had, even in a scrip. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and smote the Philistine, and slew him. But there was no sword in his hand. Everyone knows the story of David, how he killed Goliath, but many don't know the entire story. You see, in verse 40, David put five smooth stones in his shepherd's bag. And so the question that must be asked if you read that story, why five? When he only used a stone to kill Goliath. Didn't God have enough power in David's life to cause David to be a good shot and kill Goliath with one stone? Bible says he did that. Surely God's anointing cannot miss. But verse 50 tells us, David prevailed with a single stone. But the question remains is, what happened to the other four? Well, the mystery is revealed somewhat in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 22. These four, hmm, these four were born to the giant in Gath and fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Who's these four? These are the brothers of Goliath. Five smooth stones, five giants. Only one giant is dead. There are four still roaming the earth, alive, doing havoc, to other people. Second Samuel chapter 21. Read it with me. Some of the words I might not get exactly right. The Philistines again waged war against Israel. David went down with his soldiers and they fought the Philistines. Look at here now. But David became exhausted. Hmm. Next verse. Then Ishbanah, one of the descendants of the giant, whose bronze spear weighed about eight pounds, and who wore new armor, intended to kill David. Ishbanah. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You must never again go out with us to battle. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Stay there for a moment, Justin. David was their leader. He was tired. He's an older man. He doesn't have that vibrancy of youth. He doesn't have the legs that he used to have, the power, the stamina. But he was out fighting. But smart enough to at least Bring his men with him. But they were concerned. 
that the lamp of their leader would be extinguished. They cared about their leader. Next verse. After this, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob. And at that time, Sabakai, the Hishthotite, killed Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giant. Next verse. Once again, there was a battle with the Philistines of Gob, and Elhan, the son of Jahar Arishim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. At Gath, there was still another battle. A huge man was there with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in all. He, too, was descended from the giant. When he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of David's brother, Shimei, killed him. These four were descended from the giant in Gath and were killed by David and his soldiers. Hmm. I'd like to take you to 1 Chronicles chapter 20 as I lay the foundation concerning the meaning of these giants. In 1 Chronicles chapter 20 and verse 4, it came to pass after this there arose a war at Giza with the Philistines, at which time Sabakai, the Hushtatite, slew Sipai. That was of the children of the giant, and they were subdued. And there was war again with the Philistines, and Elahan, the son of Jair, slew Lamai, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, whose spear staff was like a weaver's beam. And yet again there was war at Gath, where it was a man of great stature, whose fingers and toes were four and twenty, six on each hand, six on each foot, and he also was the son of the giant. But when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, slew him. The reason I included this passage in Chronicles, which duplicates 2 Samuel chapter 21, was because the name Lamai, L-A-H-M-I, was introduced, but it wasn't explored exclusively in 2 Samuel chapter 1. He was described as the Gittite, but I wanted to give him a name because the Bible gave him a name. So here I have five chairs, and I have five props. And everybody knows that David killed Goliath. And I know this is not a depiction truly of Goliath, but you can see he's on his throne. And you can see he's got his hands up like he's somebody. He's got a lot of power. He's laughing at the Israel army, saying, who's going to take me out? Who's going to take me off my throne? And when you look at the word Goliath, he means splendor. Look at him. Look at all the splendor that he has. Look how he's decked out. He's arrayed. He's somebody. He's a giant. He's 13 feet tall. He's the strongest man in the world. No one can beat me. No one can push me to the side. When you begin to look at the name Goliath and see what God is saying, these giants were giants that David probably didn't slay in his youth. The four that were left. And they affect us if we look at it realistically and truthfully. Now we could put a disclaimer and say, this doesn't pertain to me, Pastor. Then just sit there and don't let it pertain to you. 
but it pertains to all of us. Yes, sir. Because what you don't slay in your youth, you will face somewhere down the road. You will face somewhere down the road, trust me. I've been in this too long not to know that. And so when I look at the name Goliath and I look at splendor, when you begin to see the definition, it means to uncover oneself. It means to discover or show oneself. To be revealed by God and not to be disclosed. To lay bare. To be made known. Hmm. You see, Goliath was going to be uncovered. He was going to be laid bare. God was going to show him who he was and show Goliath who he was. God was going to show, I've got more splendor and more power than you, sir. And I'm able to take you out with a slingshot and a stone. But you think you're it. You think you're everything. Now, how does this pertain to David? Well, David is a 17-year-old boy, and he kills Goliath. And listen, everybody's shouting the praises of David. Everybody's in David's corner and saying, hey, 17 years old, what a, what a great man of God. God's on him with great power. What an anointing to take out the giant, not put Saul's armor on, but with a slingshot and a stone. But David had to be stripped also. Because now David had splendor. David was getting praise, accolades, being lifted up. Look what he can do as compared to Saul. Saul was meaningless in the sense of what David did. Because Saul didn't make a move as the king. Neither did his soldiers make a move. But a boy comes into town. And he makes a move because he believes what God has said to him on the hillside. David, little shepherd boy, a cast off, sort of disengaged from his father, a no count. And when the prophet came down to anoint the new king, he brought in his sons, Jesse did. And Samuel said, none of these can be king. They're handsome, they're goodly, whatever. But they're not the one. There must be another son because I know God did not make a mistake. Come on. And Jesse said, yes, there's one more, you know, Mr. Green Jeans, the farmer. The one that takes care of my sheep. And Samuel said, bring him in. And when Samuel saw him, he took the anointing oil. And he poured it upon David and pronounced that this will be the next king of Israel. What splendor. What applause from God. What applause from a prophet who had the privilege to anoint the next king of Israel. Now David has all this going on. David did not become king for many years. Because when you look at the further meaning of the word Goliath and how it applies to David, it means exile. David went into exile in the cave at Adullam. So God can take some of that splendor out. 
so that God can remove him from some of that praise. And he located him in a cave. And in that cave, he lived. And on top of it, as time went on, God sent him 400 disgruntled, depressed, discouraged, dismantled soldiers of Saul to take care of. What a burden. What a caretaker. And what a pastor. But David had to be learned to be stripped. However, if we don't do what God wants us to do and allow God to do the stripping of the splendor, when David was approximately 60 years old, he looked on the wrong side of the fence because of his lust that he could not control. That was part of his splendor. And he saw Bathsheba taking a bath and said to his servant, who is that woman? Well, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Being the king, having power, sitting on the throne, he forgot momentarily where he came from. He went back on the throne. And he used his power, his position, to bring a woman into his bed and lay with her and commit adultery impregnate her and have the murder of her husband arranged on the battlefield. Wow. Obviously, David was not totally stripped of his splendor, of his power, of his position. We have to ask ourselves, Will I allow God to deal with my splendor while I'm young? So that I might be able to stand when I'm old. Will I be able to allow God to deal with my good looks, my intellect, my know-how, my family, Will I allow God to deal with that and put it in proper perspective so that when I'm old and especially in middle age I don't look over the fence to think that the grass is green. So David had five smooth stones and he did kill Goliath. But I believe there was some residue that was left in his life that he didn't quite conquer. So let's go to the man in the chair here. This is my man in the chair. My problem. This is Ishbanam. Ishbanam. And when you look at the definition of his name, he was one of the Philistine giants who attacked David in battle. He was slain by Abishai. But his name means to sit down specifically in judgment. 
It means to remain, to dwell, to settle. It means to ease oneself and just endure. To be set, I'm good. Just stay right there. It means to have one's abode in a high place, which means pride. It actually means to marry, not another person, but kind of yourself. Like, look who I am. To marry means and implies a way of life. I'm going to sit there. It's my pattern. It's my habit. It's my pride. I've attained. Look at me. And here's what the man in the chair says. I've attained. And I look down at you in judgment. Because I have so much pride in my life that I think you're beneath me. I'm better than you. I'm higher up. I have my own chair. I sit here. I'm saved. I've got it made. And that person who sits in that chair begins to compare himself to others and begins to feel good about himself. But guess what? He's just sitting there. Not making a move, but having all kinds of assumptions, presumptions, suppositions about everyone else and lays himself in judgment of others. Because he's attained. And remains that way for life. Hmm. Then we have Seth. And he's the bowl. See the little bowl there? His name means basin-like. In the sense of containing. The word in Hebrew actually means vestibule. And a vestibule is a limited room where you put your snow boots and your coats. It's very limited. His name means a dish for holding. It's a bowl. It's a cup. It means threshold. To be a doorkeeper. I'll explain that. The bowl, Saf plays it safe. Self-contained. Self-satisfied. Limitations. I don't go beyond the threshold. I just go so far and remain passive and I'm not assertive. So here's Saf. The second giant. And he has his bowl. And he's happy with his bowl. He's happy with minimal. He's happy with, this is what I got. I'm good with that. I'm never going to cross the line. I'm never going to take a healthy risk. I'm afraid of failure. I'm really afraid that people will look at me and say I'm a failure. But never take me that risk in faith and saying, maybe I can improve myself. Maybe I can do better. Maybe I can become something that God wants for me to become. But he's the best of you. He's in a limited, tight spot. Because the enemy has deceived him. The enemy has just 
taking him out to believe. He's the bowl. And people walk around with the bowl. That's it. You can't challenge some people. You can't motivate them. You can't inspire them. You're just happy with the bowl. The bowl. Wow. What a way to live. Passive, not assertive, no voice. No voice. Can't hear him. Can't hear him. Just there. Take care of me. Help me. Love me. Nourish me. Watch out for me. Be the caretaker of my life. Then we have Lamline. And he's represented by the bread. bread. The bread, Lamai, his name means my bread. My bread. This is my bread, not your bread. Those are my bagels. They're not your bagels. Hmm. His name means to fight. His name means to do battle and make war. His name means to engage in battle, wage in war. This is anger. He looks at his bread. And if you try to come near his bread, it's going to fight you. You see, with children, it's my truck. It's my baby dog. It's not yours. It's mine. You can't have it. You can't play with it. Selfish. And the other child says, well, I would like to play with your truck. No, you can't. It's mine. And then there's what? A fight. There's anger. There's war. Over a truck. Because... It's my truck. It's my bread. And I'm not going to let you touch it. It belongs to me. Wow. Selfish? Egotistical? Fighting spirit? Wanting to war? Because you think it belongs to you? And that you have Complete control over your bread. As if you had control over your heartbeat. Or the next breath that you would take that God would give you. But you know, this anger, this is not healthy. I see it in children. I see it in adults. I see it in myself at times. And I say, why the conflict? Why do we get angry? Why do we defend 
and sometimes continually stay in anger and conflict. I read you an interesting thing. I just want to read a few lines to you from Goliath Might Fall, Must Fall by Louis Giglio, and this was the workbook. And this really shed a lot of light. And I quote, psychologist Leon Seltzer says that when we feel angry, our brain secretes the hormone norepinephrine, which is a painkiller. The anger thus helps us to numb whatever other feeling triggered it. That numbed feeling may be fear or hurt or pain or rejection or many other possibilities. Anger makes us feel like we're in control even when we're losing control of the anger. I said, what? So you're telling me when a person wants to stay in anger and conflict that there's a hormone being secreted in their brain that numbs the pain of their hurt and rejection that happened probably in their childhood. That's why people stay angry. That's why people stay in conflict. That's why some people, there's no peace. And there will never be peace until we slay that giant. Never will there be peace in the heart of a person, in their spirit, because they're receiving the hormone that's dulling the pain that they need to deal with, the cause of their anger. A lot of times people aren't really angry at you or have conflict with you, but take it out on you because they know that you're not going to retaliate because they know that you're going to love them. But their anger is toward their father, toward their mother, toward their siblings, the pain. This has happened to me as a pastor. I had to deal with things in my 50s that were giants that were laying low in my life. Anger, bitterness, feelings that we can suppress and stuff for so long. Some of the stuff that I experienced when I was younger. That bitterness, that root, sometimes reappeared. Under pressure, under duress. Well, you step outside of your character because that giant wasn't really slayed. Hmm. Then we have the man with more fingers and toes than he needed. And that's the baseball ball. I didn't have a big hand. But this is the baseball glove, the hand. And what does that represent? It represents this giant with all these fingers and toes. And his name means to grasp. Something to seize. And then I looked at the definition and it said, to dip into coloring fluid a dye. Dye was colored, something dyed. Something that was colored, which actually means something not genuine. A powerful grasp that steps on others, greedy and covetous, but masks itself because the person can't accept the fact that he needs help. That colored 
clothing, that dye, dipped into dye, means something I'm hiding. I don't want to be exposed. But if you come near me on the job force, and we're both up for a promotion, I'm going to seize the opportunity to throw you under the bus to make myself shine and look good to my employer. If there's one donut left in the bag, it's mine. Because I've got the big hand. If there's one piece of candy, it's mine. I'm not sharing. I'm going to seize it. And when God begins to expose our personalities and shows us that we're covering up, it's painful. It's really painful. When God shows us that we're on our throne, trying to control the universe, my will instead of his will. Look at my splendor. Look how smart I am. Look what I got. Look what I wear. Look where I live. This guy here, it's my bread. Selfish, colleges, it's my bread. And I'm going to get angry if you come near my bread. We're going to have war. Because I love war. I like confrontation. I love the And this guy, don't mess with my donuts. Don't mess with my donuts. They belong to me. And this guy here? Well, I am what I am. If God wants me to change life, he'll do it. Yeah, right. If God wants me to come to work and put me in my car on Monday morning, it's not the engine. Now, if God wants me to go to work, if God wants me to have a job, it'll just come from heaven. I just know that it'll just fall from the sky, son. And then I'll know it's God. But meanwhile, if I went to Indeed.com, probably the greatest source in New York State for jobs, but you know, I'm, I have a goal here. And I want you to take care of me. This is all I got. I'm not going to step beyond the threshold. Be crazy if you think I am. Because this is it. This is it. And the guy in the chair? Well, he's just like maybe one step above the bowl. I got my stuff. I got my six pack, I got my potato chips. I got the newest DVR setup. Man, I can speak into my remote now and I can just tell that thing what you do. You know, do this movie. Record that one. Go to the store for me. Five pounds of potatoes, gallon of milk, and a loaf of bread. Thank you. What's the weather going to be today? Let me go ask that lady that's on my counter there in that little uh, that little throne there. Let me ask her. And, and meanwhile, hey, listen, be careful. Because I heard a doctor the other day say, you better turn off your telephone, your cell phone in your bedroom because you're being heard. Cell phones 
are being monitored. They're being monitored. And while you're in a passionate moment, there could be somebody in central office or Albany, who knows, listening to your passion. They said you might want to turn off your cell phone near your bed when you go to bed. Think about that. Think about how warped our society is becoming. Think about all the giants that our children are going to face just electronically. Think about those giants. Think about these giants today. How do they apply to us? How do these giants apply to me and you this morning? Are they fictitious? David needed help to slay these giants. He needed his army to defeat them. He could not do it by himself. And we need each other to defeat the giants in our life. You cannot do it by yourself. Yes. No man is an island. We're not isolationists. You'll be ambushed. I don't need you. I got this. This is my secret. Well, don't die with your secret. Don't go to your grave where they're going to write on your grave. Great potential lies here. Now it's dead. There is no more potential. What are you saying, Pastor? In his youth, David was able to destroy Goliath by himself. But in old age, he needed help. Because he was exhausted. And the Bible said David fainted, but he did not flee. He stayed in the battle. Even though he was tired. And I know that feeling this morning. I know the feeling of exhaustion. Mentally and spiritually, emotionally, physically. The schedule, the rigor. It's just continuous. The battle against the mind to fight for the house of God, for my family, for my grandchildren. To pray, to study. To get the sermon that God wants to speak for the hour. It's not a Betty Crocker move. It's not put the cake mix in, add two eggs, put some milk in, stir it up and put it in the oven. It's a process. It's a process. And then the giants come. The most powerful enemies are often reserved for the last conflict. Listen to me. I'm going to close. You see, David began his conquest with one giant. But it concluded the conquest of four giants when he was older. What's God saying? The enemy will throw the kitchen sink at us in the last days. Make no mistake about it. The enemy will throw... Every demonic force from hell against you, your family, your loved ones, your babies, your children. Because he has one goal, to kill, steal, and destroy. Those giants are now being unleashed demonically. Because Satan knows that his time is short. He knows that. He's been told that. And he's stepping up the operation and the process against his church. 
against his ministers, against the houses of God. And we're going to be facing those giants. And if we don't face those giants together and slay them, there won't be a church. There'll just be a group of people that come and sit, bored, waiting to go home and watch television. But this morning, God was saying something. He brought us in the room. And the answer is in the room. And every giant that comes against us, there's an answer for that giant as we allow God to examine our hearts. We have to be honest with each other. We cannot point the finger. Except if it's pointed at ourselves. It's easy to be critical of someone. It's easy to take someone down so you feel better about yourself because you think you're so smart and you've got the answer, but you don't because the giant's got you tangled up in a web. That's why we need help. We need each other. And God is trying to speak to this church like never before that we would come together as one man, as the book of Ephesians tells us. No distractions. No excuses. Because war is on. And when war is on, the enemy does not fight fairly. He fights illegally. He's a trash talker. He's a street fighter. He doesn't fight looking at you face to face. He tries to jump you on your back and stab you in your heart. He's on your back. You say, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm trying to proclaim the vision I believe God's been given me for the church. Because souls are at stake. People are going to hell. That maybe we can help them to prevent that. Come on. But if we're quarreling and we're not on the same sheet of music and I as a pastor don't feel like I got the wind at my back, then I feel like the giants are going to come and destroy the harvest that God's given us. I'm just being flat honest with you. This is no time to allow the enemy to dominate us with feelings, emotions, distortions, suppositions, presumptions, assumptions, and all the nonsense that he's thrown at us. You've got to rely on the Holy Spirit to see what's true. Come on, preach. I have one goal in my life. It's to be the best father, the best husband, the best grandpa, and the best pastor, and the best Christian that I can be. Not here to fight with nobody. Not here to fight with nobody. I'm here to be on the same sheet of music that God wants us to be on. God's made me an under shepherd here. He's trying to bring forth a vision. And if you're not behind that vision that God is trying to lay out, then it's going to be hard for God to do his will in the church. 
everyone has to sing the same song. One mind, one accord. And we all have to examine our hearts to see where these five giants lay in our life this morning and how they apply to us. Because I have to believe that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you as he's speaking to me. Come on. Examine your heart. Amen. Examine your heart. And for the good of the church, and for the kingdom of God, we have to give up ourselves for the team. For the whole. I'm not trying to be big I and little you. Never have been there. Just trying to be the pastor. Just trying to direct the house of God the way I believe he's telling me to direct. And it's not easy. And I'm not trying to make everybody happy. I'm just trying to do God's will for the church. Are you hearing me? And the only way that's going to be accomplished is if we look at the five giants that have been displayed this morning and allow God to speak to our hearts. Whether we're on the throne, whether we're claiming it's my bread, whether we have a big big grasp and a big hand, whether we're the little bowl that's willing to just stay inferior, or the man in the chair that's stuck and no vision, ready to die. I have to fight all of these giants in my life. And my friend, it gets harder when you get older. You need help. How do I know that? David could not defeat these giants without his men. Because he was tired, he was exhausted, and he was just flat out coming to the end. Hear me. This is a great church. I said, this is a great church. And I believe God wants it greater. What God displayed here this morning in worship was stupendous. That's the way it should be. We're in the room. And when I'm in the room, I'm comfortable. When I'm in the room, I'm accepted. When I'm in the room, I'm affirmed. When I'm in the room, I'm loved. And when I'm in the room, God is speaking to my heart and he's saying, son, you're on the right track. You're on the right track. Push. Press into my presence. I'll continue to anoint you. But speak to the people and let them know that they all need one another as a whole to fight this battle and win this war for their family and for their future. God bless you. Thank you for listening.